The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. For our scripture reading, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read a short portion of Ephesians 5, the end of the chapter, for our scripture reading. Verses 31 through 33. This is the living and abiding word of God. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we have the awesome privilege of being able to hear Dr. Joel Beakey. He's been with us since uh, Friday, and I have to say that um, there are a lot of things that make the weekend special, but having my, uh, my old seminary professor, Bruce Ware, here is always a, a pleasure, and to have Jody with you is a great pleasure, and to have Dr. and Mrs. Beakey with us is just a joy. Uh, these two men are, are choice servants of the Lord. And uh, they've had a tremendous impact on my life, and so I'm so glad that you're here. So, brother, come. Are your Bibles still open to Ephesians 5? I want to read from verses... 20 to 33. And we're going to also read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Turn back then to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. First Corinthians 4. Charity, or love, suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunts not itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeks not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. Lord God, bless this message. Use it. Use it, we pray, to transform broken marriages Use it to improve mediocre marriages, but use it to beautify blessed marriages and use it for all who are married to honor thee, to glorify thee intentionally, daily in their marriage. But above all, Lord, use it to teach us that we all need to know that spiritual marriage with the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you did it again. You criticized your spouse in his or her presence, or maybe worse, in the presence of his mother-in-law, your mother, And deep down, you realize your marriage isn't what it used to be. On a scale of 1 to 10, it used to be 9, maybe 10. And now it's mediocre. Mediocrity has settled in. Not that you argue a lot, but you're kind of like two ships passing in the night. You can't honestly say anymore that The glory of God is the intentional purpose of both you and your spouse when you get up in the morning for that day in your marriage. It's not that you're going to divorce each other, but it's even not that you don't have hope for your marriage, but you don't know if you're going to be pursuing change. I'm here to tell you, based on the Word of God, that you can get it back to a 9 or a 10 by following the principles of the Bible. 
So welcome, welcome to a message on how to live out a biblical marriage. If you live your marriage biblically, you will live it to the glory of God, you'll live it out of love for your spouse, and the fruit of it will be a joy, an unspeakable joy, in your own heart and in your own life. So how do we build our marriage? How do we build our marriage? On the word of God. How do we live it out? On the word of God. Well, I have several points for you. I won't tell you how many. <laughs> but I want to take the Ephesians 5 passage, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, and I, want to, I just want to build some of the biblical principles there as much as we have time for. The first principle then is, which I've already implied, is build your marriage. Build your marriage on the Word of God. Let the Bible be its directive. Let the Bible be its final authority. The Bible will tell you how to think about marriage. The Bible tells us about what foundation to build our marriage. The Bible tells us about what should be the ruling principles of our marriage. The Bible tells us about our mutual duties in marriage and how to perform them. The Bible talks about what struggles to expect in marriage and how to address them. And the Bible even talks to us about how to persevere in a difficult marriage. This is the best marriage textbook in the world, the Holy Bible. God has revealed what marriage is, why he created it, how to enjoy it, and how to glorify him in it. And you will only have a truly blessed marriage if you follow God's rule book. There's no other way. Now, if you're unsaved in God's common grace, I'm a professor too, so I think in terms of grades and numbers and I think maybe you can get up to a C minus marriage, maybe, maybe a C plus in extraordinary cases. You can never get to a straight A marriage when you're unsaved. Even though you say, I love my spouse. Because you're missing the real purpose of marriage, where the two of you are living for the glory of God and a threefold cord between God and husband and wife is not easily broken. Now, marriage started out very beautifully, didn't it? Adam just loved Eve like crazy. He saw her as the gift of God. He called her man, woman, taken out of man. These two were really one. Adam felt fulfilled. He had to help meet fitting for him. But you know the story. How long their pure joy lasted, we don't know. Most Puritans said probably not more than a week, but they were speculating. <laughs> but it wasn't long. It wasn't long before they fell. And their marriage was on the brink of divorce. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree. Oh, and I did eat. It was the woman. You see, looking at this spouse... That's the problem. 
that is still the problem with marriages that are in difficulty today. It was a dark future. This marriage was at its precipice. But God came. As Adam and Eve were having fallen terribly, having broken God's authority, God's covenant, covenanting with Satan, God came and turned that whole ship around and unveiled to them the covenant of grace and said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God came and said, I will restore your marriage. And he, he sacrificed animals. They had never seen death. There was no death prior to that. It was an unforgettable experience. And clothed them with bloodied skins, pointing to the seed to come who would triumph over broken marriages and who would restore Adam and Eve into the fullness of the image of God. And Eve, therefore, when they had their first child, said, I've gotten the man from the Lord. She thought it was the Messiah. But oh, what a disappointment. Struggles, trials, Cain. Then she has Abel, which means vanity. What is life? She's so disappointed with Cain. Her expectation is crushed. Cain rises up, kills Abel, disappears. It's like they're childless again. And then God brings Seth into the world, appointed. In Hebrew, it means appointed for a restitution. Eve and Adam have been created anew, and they see hope in the gospel again. Their marriage is revived, and they produce the godly seed through the line of Seth, and God comes and does a marvelous work and undoes what the first Adam had, undid, had undone and gives to Adam and Eve a marriage in Christ. So what is that marriage in Christ? Well, there's no place in the Bible that talks about it like Paul does in Ephesians 5. This is the best theology chapter on marriage in the Bible. And if you break it down into one sentence, it's, it's, it's really quite simple, quite profound, quite challenging, and quite beautiful. It's simply this. Husband, you are to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. No matter how she treats you. And wife, you are to show respect to your husband. No matter how he treats you. That's a tall order. On both sides of the equation. So how does Paul work that out? Well, to husbands he says, you are, you are to love your wife. How? Well, he tells you four ways. Look at the text with me. Husband, verse 25, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So you're to love your wife 
Absolutely. It's not a 50-50 deal. Marriage isn't a 50-50 deal. That's how the world thinks. You, get, you do your part, I'll do my part, we'll come together, we both give half, it'll work out. Jesus didn't give half for you, dear believer. He gave his whole self. 100%. You know, I read a quaint Puritan story, a true story, where a pastor saw a new married couple that he, he had performed their wedding, and you know, they were doting on each other a little bit thick, a little bit heavy in public, and he thought, you know, this is a little bit overdone. And so those were the days when a pastor could walk up to his parishioner and just give them advice without offending them because they just respected him so much. You know, sort of like Brian Borgman does with people. <laughs> and this pastor walked up to him and said, you know, young man, I think you ought to consider, are you perhaps making an idol of your wife? And the man was like, an idol of my wife? Well, God is number one in my life. And so, but he was a good Berean, and he went home, and he started to search the Bible. Am I possibly making an idol of my wife? And he came across this text. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He said, I've never bled for my wife. I've never died for my wife. I don't love her enough. So I went back to the pastor and he showed him the text and he said, look, pastor, I'm to love my wife absolutely. and I, I fall short. And those were the days also, not only when the people accepted correction from the pastor, but actually the days when people could approach pastors and correct them. And the pastor looked at the text, he said, you're right, go home and love your wife. See, we are to love our wives, absolutely. Number two, we are to love our wives, verse 26, purposefully that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word to present her to himself a glorious church. Purposely. So how many men here today, you, you originally married your wife for this purpose, that you would sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word to present her on the judgment day as a glorious bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that why you married her? Do we even realize the purpose of marriage? It's not a selfish purpose. Yes, we get wonderful benefits from it. But the purpose is that I want to be able to say in the judgment day, or even more, I want to be able to hear my wife say in the judgment day to the Lord, because I was married to this man. I was made much more godly. He washed me all those years with the water of the word by his leadership in daily family worship and in our family and for my own soul. And he, he grew me by the Spirit's grace so that I may stand before you, Lord, washed in the blood of the Lamb, not only, but holy in thy sight. What a beautiful purpose. You're to love her purposefully. Men, there's probably 
few better prayers we could pray in the morning when we get up and say, Lord, let me so live in relation to my wife today that she may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through my leadership. Thirdly, you ought to love your wives realistically. Notice the middle of verse 27. I stopped in the middle of the verse because it goes on to say, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Everyone, everyone has so-called spots and wrinkles. No one is perfect. This is not talking about just the physical. This is talking about the spiritual. There is no one on earth to marry who is not a sinner. And so you marry your wife realistically. You don't expect perfection of her. You don't put burdens upon her that are impossible for a woman to meet. You're not a critical person. Major faults that involve tinges of sin, yes, you, you need to learn to, to, to give constructive, loving criticism. But minor problems, minor weaknesses, you look the other way. Like Spurgeon said, before you're married, keep both eyes wide open. After you're married, keep them both half shut. <laughs> because you're fundamentally not going to change people. You're not going to fundamentally change your wife. You learn to appreciate her the way she is. You'll be realistic. Don't put heavy weights on her shoulder that she can't bear. And fourth, you're to love your wives sacrificially. Sacrificially. Verses 28 29. So what men to love their wives as their own bodies? He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man yet, yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. So men, what do you do if you get something in your eye? You don't say, hey, I, I'm busy right now, I'll take care of you tomorrow. No, you, you go over to the mirror, and you look in, see where it is, and you try to get that thing out right away, because you're hurting. You're to love your wife like your own body. She's like the tender part of your eye. One of the old Puritans says in his, his marriage uh, textbook, he says, your wife is not like a piece of outdoor furniture that you can run over even in the wintertime. She's like a tender vase. You treat her tenderly. She's feminine. You treat her like the tender part of your body. You live sacrificially. You want to please her. You want to show her your love. There you have it. Are you loving your wife? This is your task. You're to love her. Absolutely, purposefully, realistically, sacrificially, daily, intentionally, as Christ loves the church. Well, how are you to relate to your husband? You're to respect him. You're to reverence him. You're to show submission to him. Now, submission, granted, is less hard work when you have a very loving husband. But you see, the point here of Paul is that men don't love their wives on the condition that their wives are just beautiful and responsive to everything and always kind and 
wonderful. No, men are to love their wives, period. No matter how your wife treats you. I'm not talking now about abusive cases. That's another category. But you women, it's the same thing. Submission is not a dirty word, even though our culture says it is. It's a beautiful word. It's the way God has made you relate to your husband. There can't be two heads in a home, God is saying. So you show respect and reverence and submission. So in a happy home, a happy marriage, you see, the husband is very grateful for everything his wife does. He loves her, thanks her for every meal she makes, comes home, hugs her, adores her. But the woman also shows great respect. She throws her arms around her husband when he comes home and says, thank you for working hard today, honey. I respect so much what you do. That makes a man feel like a million bucks, just like a woman feels like a million bucks when she gets loved. God made man and woman this way. Post-fall, you see, the greatest weakness in marriages is that a man has a weakness in not loving his wife in these four ways. And the greatest weakness of a woman is that she tends not to show submission to her husband, but takes things in her own hands and wants her way or the highway. And so what Paul is doing is he's focusing on the greatest purposes of what a beautiful, redeemed in Christ, post-fall marriage should look like, but it's also a reflection of the greatest weakness of our human nature. So submission is a sweet thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's the way God made you. Now, what does submission mean? Submission does not mean that you can't express your ideas to your husband when you are talking about something. Of course, you talk things over. In a healthy marriage, 99% of the time, you just come to agreement on how to look at things. And you talk it over, and iron sharpens iron. It's great. But what about that 1% of time, or if maybe you have very different characters, maybe it's 5% or 10%. Bad marriages, of course, it's 20 to 50 or you know, 90% the other way. You're always disagreeing. What do you do then? Here's what the Bible says. When you, I'm talking about non-sin issues. See, if, if, if your husband says to you, go rob a bank tomorrow, I'm using an exaggerated case, obviously that's a sin. And since Christ and the word are higher on the chain of authority, husband is over the wife, but the word is over the husband, and Christ is the one over the word. Authority comes from God who gave it to Christ, who sends it through his word and spirit. And that is communicated to the husband to rule his wife. So the higher the chain of authority, you see, the higher you've got to go. And you've got to then say to your husband, I'm sorry, I cannot rob a bank because Christ says thou shalt not steal. So you disobey him when he disobeys the Lord. But if it's a non-sin issue, you see, then you need to say, my dear husband, we've talked about it, and we do disagree, we disagree amicably, and I completely trust your judgment, and therefore I willingly, gladly, cheerfully, without a negative tone of voice, and say, you do what you want to do then. (laughs) No, I cheerfully obey you because I submit from the heart. From the heart. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you, husband, in that disagreement, will then say, okay, I got my way now. No, 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 no. Just give me, I'll give you a real simple example. You get the picture. Let's say we want to go out to eat tonight, and my wife wants to go to P.F. Chang's, and I want to go to Chick-fil-A. What do I do when she says to me, well, you decide then, it's completely your choice, I'm willing to do either one. But I sense deep down, she really wants to go to P.F. Chang's. Well, as a loving husband, I say, Honey, okay, let's go to P.F. Chang's. Now, that's not too hard to submit to. But you see, the point is this. The husband takes his wife's feelings into consideration because he loves her. And so then submission, yes, you submit, but other times the husband will say, in those times of of disagreement, "I, I feel convicted that we need to go this way, and then the wife sweetly submits. That's the way a marriage is to work. And when you both obey God's command of love and submission, you will discover that your marriage will be very happy indeed. So those are the basics here. That's principle number one. You submit to the major principle of the word of God. Number two, in a good marriage, you cultivate spiritual fellowship. Notice what it says in verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Now, oneness has its pinnacle in spiritual fellowship. A God-glorifying marriage will cultivate this kind of friendship. The best marriages on earth are those marriages when husband and wife can talk to each other freely about their spiritual joys, their spiritual experiences, their spiritual struggles, their spiritual questions, and understand each other, sympathize with each other, help each other, rejoice with each other. How sad it is when a marriage where both people are Christians, but they don't talk to each other about the things of God. They consult about all the trivia of daily life, which is good. But about the main thing, you don't talk to each other. Not good. Not good. When you hear a sermon together, you're driving home in the car. Don't you ask each other? I hope you do. How did you fare under that sermon, my dear? What did you learn? You don't criticize the preacher on the way home. (laughs) The question is, what did you learn? What did you profit? What did you take away from the sermon for your good? And vice versa. And it's amazing how bonded you can get when you both have a living faith in Christ and you share your spiritual concerns, your frustrations, your triumphs, your pilgrimage, your progress. So, then your spouse, you see, becomes your very best friend in the whole world with whom you don't hold any secrets. And you make it your regular practice to tell her the truths that God has been teaching you in your Bible reading or in family worship or you read and discuss spiritually edifying books together 
and you pray together. Actually, that's number three. There's a special place for praying together. A praying marriage is a blessed marriage. And I think one thing many of our forefathers did wrong, seriously wrong, is that husband did all the praying because he was the head of the home. But the Bible never says, Your wife shall, thou, thy wife shall not pray before thee. No. You're, you're, you're knit together in your heart. And so it's wonderful to hear the feminine side of prayer. We need that. We men. I, I love to hear my wife pray. I ask her to pray at every meal. You know, we do the old Dutch style where we pray before the meal and we pray after the meal. I pray first. She prays at the close of the meal. Same thing in family worship. And same thing when we go to bed at night. One of the most beautiful things in marriage, in my opinion, is when you go to bed at night, you both get down on your knees side by side and hold hands beside the bed. I pray one night, she prays the next night. We remember the sick together, we remember our children, we remember the church, we remember missions around the world, we remember ourselves, we remember our marriage. What a beautiful way to end the day. That sweetness of mutual prayer, I'll tell you, it's, it's worth more to me in marriage than, than all, all the money in the world. Praying together as a part of your holy habits, a kind of means of grace to strengthen your faith together in Christ, zealously guard that habit and that time together. And you know, sometimes, sometimes your prayer won't amount to much. Actually, both my wife and I sometimes say to each other, after we, after we pray, I'm sorry, just wasn't very good tonight. And you know what? We both say to each other, it's okay, honey. God, don't worry about it. It was fine. God, God will help us to pray more, better tomorrow. Just ask God to forgive you, and the next night you, you try over again. Not God. You know, God, we think God is tired of our prayers. But God loves you when you're a Christian. He loves to hear your voice. He's not expecting perfection. I was struggling with that with one day in our home about the poverty of my prayers. And my son walked up the stairs at that time and said, Morning, Dad. And I thought to myself, as I said, good morning, son. You know, he said the same thing for the last 2,000 mornings in a row. And I'm not tired of it. I'm not tired of it because he's my son. And you go back to God again and again with the same petitions. I mean, do try to get some variety in your prayer. But you go back to God with the same petitions. God loves to hear your voice. He says, your voice is comely, Song of Solomon. Now, the best way to get variety in prayer, really, is to do what the Puritans did. It's to, you read the Bible, then you meditate on what you read. They called it the halfway house between, meditation is the halfway house, they said, between Bible reading and prayer. And then you go to prayer. So in their private life, what they often did was they just would turn open to a psalm. They'd read, say, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Then they'd meditate for a little while. 
about all the ways the Lord is my shepherd as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. Meditate two or three minutes. Then they would have a short prayer. Lord, be my shepherd and be my prophet to lead me this way. Variety in their prayer by using the word and by using meditation. And how great that is when you can pray together and and use some of that variety and uh, feel, feel communion with God as you pray with your spouse. So when you have children and you pray in front of the family and family worship and so on, and that's, that's actually my next point, that, that's wonderful, but you also need that private time where you're praying just with your spouse, just the two of you, that will bond you. It's not just the family that prays together that stays together. It's the marriage that prays together that stays together. And then fourth, of course, is practicing family worship, which I've already talked about this weekend, so I I won't belabor that point here. But in a good marriage, even if it's just the two of you, but also when you have children, you need to do daily family worship. Worship the Lord, talking with each other about the Bible, reading the Bible, singing, praying together. What a special, special thing this is. That leads me to number five in which I want to summarize what I've been saying. The Puritans said this about about loving your spouse, which is number five, love your spouse. You're to love your spouse spiritually, superlatively, and sexually. Spiritually, you're to love your spouse with a special kind of love like you love no one else. You can be very close as a believer to another believer. But you should save your deepest spiritual communication for your wife, they said. I think that's what Paul's saying here. You're joined to your wife. There should be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church, reflected in your marriage. There's an intimacy with Christ, isn't there, when you're a believer? that you can't put into words. Your deepest, sweetest communion with Christ. You can't explain that to anyone. But if you have something similar with your wife, you can't explain that to anyone either. And you can't imagine that there'd be another woman in the world, another man in the world, with which you could have such closeness as you do with your wife. And that's a reflection of Christ in the church, Paul says. You're like one. Now, it never reaches absolute perfection. But it's just like salvation. You're justified by faith. You enter into a state of peace with God. But you still have to be sanctified. And you grow in it. That's what marriage is like your whole life long. So when a couple walks down this aisle to be married... How do they walk down? Well, the husband-to-be and the, and the wife-to-be walk down separately, don't they? Because there are two. When they go back out after the end of the ceremony, how do they go out? Hand in hand. They're one. They're in a state of marriage. Well, does that mean they're really totally one in the condition of their marriage? It takes a lifetime. And even in their dying breath, They're still not totally one. But you see, the beauty, the beauty 
of it all is that Christ will make us perfectly one with him in glory. Perfectly one with him. So our marriages are to reflect that growing oneness just as our growing sanctification, our growing conformity to Christ in our spiritual life is a lifelong process. And you do that by loving your wife spiritually most of all. But you're also to love her superlatively, they said. What do they mean by that? Well, I think they mean what Paul is saying in in 1 Corinthians 3. He's talking about love in general, but you see, you save your best love for your spouse. So in those 29 Puritan books I was talking to you about, about marriage, they all say something very similar. They're, they were organized in how they spent their time with people. It, it's, it's kind of interesting. They said, the most time should always be with your spouse, then your children, then your parents, then your siblings, then your more distant relatives, and then other friends. And they would say, you should never have like a male friend that you go out with, say, two nights a week. No, no, because you're robbing time from your priority relationships in which providence has put you. You're to show the most love, most charity to them. So, now, they don't, you know, hammer it out with exact numbers like that, but what they're saying is, you need time You need togetherness. You need tenderness. Time, togetherness, touch, talkativeness. You need need togetherness with your spouse if you're going to grow a marriage. You can't have a close relationship with Christ, can you, if you're praying three minutes a day? Come on. You can't say, I love Christ and have a wonderful relationship with him. I spent three minutes today in prayer. You can't say, I have a wonderful relationship with my spouse, but I never have a real talk with her. I, but I, I spend five minutes a day with her. No, it doesn't happen. So you've got to have quality time, superlatively loving your wife more than anyone else. And then that love has to particularly bear the characteristics of those four verses I read from 1 Corinthians 13. So It has to be long-suffering, patient love. That's not easily provoked. It has to be kind and selfless love, Paul goes on to say. It has to be love that isn't jealous. Love that thinks the best possible thoughts of the spouse. Love that bears and believes and hopes and endures all things, even when the two of you are going through afflictions. Happy is the marriage that is marked by this kind of superlative Love. And you see, that kind of marriage, very differently from the world, the way the world talks, no matter how good looking or how mediocre looking or how beautiful or how handsome your spouse is, you see, when you have a good marriage, the physical intimacy will be excellent. Because it'll be like a cherry on top of the cake. Beautiful physical intimacy is the fruit of a good, spiritually good marriage. And it will give a freedom in marriage that is like a warm fireplace in a home. You know how you sit in front of a fireplace and you look into the flames and you you just 
you get nostalgic and you think wonderful thoughts about God, about your wife, about your family. You ever have that? You just look into a fireplace and you're just so grateful for everything, all the kindness of God. And you just love God. But if you let that fire get beyond the fireplace, it's going to burn up your house. And you mess around with something outside of your own husband-wife relationship, the own two shall be one, and you dabble in things like pornography, you will burn up your marriage. You'll destroy your house. So Paul's saying, no flirting, just unconditional love to your wife. Don't Flee, flee sin. Flee the world. Live wholly devoted to your spouse. As man, as woman. Cultivate physical intimacy flowing out of this superlative love, out of this wonderful love of oneness. And then, if you look carefully at 1 Corinthians 13, actually, what Paul is saying here is this kind of love, this is number six, develops good communication skills. Because love that is kind and thoughtful and listens well will be communicative. In marriage, you need to learn to listen, listen, listen to each other. And men and women are different here, so you have to learn, you have to learn right, to appreciate each other's gifts and skill sets. You women tend to be a bit more, oh, we just want to talk about something. And we men tend to be, well, what's the solution? Right? I remember early in our marriage, my wife wanted to talk to me about something, so I, I, I thought I did a really good job listening. And I just drew her out with questions, reflective questions, how she felt, and she kept coming out with more and more. It's great. And I'm developing all these answers in my mind, you know. This is what you got to do. Step one, step two, step three. Three A, three B. You know, I read the Puritans. <laughs> and we get, at a certain point, she goes, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to me. And she, she stands up, and I go, well, wait a minute. Don't you want the solutions? Oh, no, she said. I just wanted to have a good talk about it. I just can't figure that out. But see, as a, in, as a married couple, you, you, learn to, you learn to know each other's language of love. That's what Paul is saying. When you're kind, when you're thoughtful, when you're not selfish. If your wife likes daisies and you like roses, you don't go out and buy her roses. You buy her daisies. You learn her language of love. And vice versa. And so... You learn to communicate this way, you see, through listening, through understanding. Now, what do you do when you need to criticize? That's a tough one. Well, what did Paul do when he needed to criticize the Corinthians? I call it the Pauline sandwich. What he did was he laid down a slice of bread. He said, you know, I love you. I've been praying for you. Everything has gone so so well in our relationship in this sense that I just appreciate you so much. Think of you every day. Then come seven levels of criticism, right? 
I hear this among you, I hear that. And the answer to all seven actually is Jesus Christ. You look at it. The answer is Christ to every one of the seven problems. But what does he do at the end? He puts on another slice of bread on top of the seven layers of meat. And he says, but I'm going to come to you soon. I love you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know how he does that. And they eat the sandwich. Now, was Paul playing games with the Corinthians? No, no. He was saying, I really do love you. It was real. You see, when you criticize your spouse and you just come home and say, oh, wow, you're late for dinner again. And your wife says, well, if you think I'm late for dinner, Buster, you, you just come and make the meal with me. What you should say is, honey, I love you so much. You're a great cook. Everything, I, I, I just love your meals. It's wonderful, but I, I've got a little concern. You know, sometimes we have church activities at night. My wife won't mind if I tell you this one. And, and, and you know, sometimes we're just a little bit late for supper, and then our, we have to rush with our family worship, and it's hard to get off to church in time, and, and I can't get my five-minute nap. Uh, <laughs> uh, would you mind, would you mind trying to push it back a little bit? And let's eat just a tad bit earlier. But don't misunderstand me, honey. I love you. I love you like crazy. I love your meals. And she's going to eat the sandwich. But that's the real picture. <laughs> that's the real picture. The fake picture would be just to focus as if her whole personality was a failure because she was 10 minutes or 20 minutes late for supper. So when you criticize somebody, just in your marriage, yes, but not just in your marriage, but anyone, for any situation, as office bearers, as church people, you have to paint the whole picture. That's what Paul is saying to us. And you have to be patient with each other, remembering your own faults. So you, 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 you use the Pauline sandwich, and you'd be amazed at how that helps good communication skills. And then seven, real quickly now, before I close, complimenting your spouse. Do you realize how many times the Bible, in husbands and wives, there's compliments, and particularly in the spiritual realm, Song of Solomon. I just want to read this to you a minute. Song of Solomon, Christ says to his church this, O thou fairest among women, my love, thou art all fair, my love, there's no spot in thee. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine? My garden, my sister, my spouse. Thine eyes have overcome me. My dove, my undefiled is but one. O love for delights. That's like 10 compliments. There's like 30 in, in the eight chapters. And then in return, the church addresses Christ. This way, thy love is better than wine, thou whom my soul loveth, my well-beloved. Thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. I am sick with love. My beloved is the chiefest among 10,000. He's altogether lovely. In a good marriage, you compliment each other, just as Christ and the church compliment each other in the Song of Solomon. We've lost that art, many of us. I'm going to tell you something. In 46 years of, of, of doing marital counseling with people in the ministry, I can't think of one case where both people were complimenting each other every day, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all kinds of ways. Both people complimenting each other every day, showing their gratitude to each other for each other, that ever had an overwhelmingly big 
problem, a big marital breakdown. Complimenting is so important. Isn't it important in our spiritual relationship? What are we doing when we praise God in some of these hymns that we just sang? We're complimenting God. We're telling him how wonderful he is. That's what you've got to do with your spouse. Well, finally, last one. In a good marriage, you develop, you develop friendship and common interests. Richard Baxter called it a covenant of companionship. And he based it on Malachi 2, that we make a covenant of companionship. Malachi 2.14. In marriage. In marriage, you make a covenant, really, to be each other's best friends in the Lord. And to be best friends, you need to have common interests. Now, that doesn't mean you have common interests in everything. But you need to have the five T's, as you can read in many marriage textbooks, time, thought, talk, tenderness, and touch. And you need, to, you need to have intimacy in different areas of your marriage. I just want to illustrate, I'll illustrate that with our own marriage. We have a, like a walking intimacy. We love to walk every night, and we walk hand in hand and talk for about 40 minutes. That's a very special time in our marriage. But my wife loves to garden. I get allergies. Going into the garden is like going into prison for me. I'm sneezing, I'm coughing, I'm itching my eyes. So I told him when we got married, I said, honey, I'll give you all the space on the lawn. You can have as big a garden as you want, but I'm never going to join you in the garden, ever. I hate gardening. Okay, so you don't force it. She's a biker. She's, I'm not really a biker, but she's talked me into biking. I would never go biking by myself, but I do go biking with her sometimes. So you work together, you get more common interests, or now we have traveling intimacy with all these conferences. You, know, you find different areas where you can have common interests. My wife always goes with me now traveling. What a blessing. You see, you build your marriage through these different intimacies. The Kleinbells wrote a book, a husband and wife wrote a book on this called The Intimate Marriage. And basically, they're saying the more areas of intimacy you have in your marriage of common interests, usually the more oneness you have and, and the more closeness you have in marriage. So take these biblical thoughts from Paul and from um, in Corinthians and in Ephesians and a little bit from Song of Solomon and examine your marriage. Sit down and talk with your wife and say, we heard a sermon this morning. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about building a more solid, a more intimate, a more biblical marriage grounded in right thinking, grounded in biblical principles and pure motives so that our marriage can reflect not just to ourselves but to all the people around us the marriage relationship of Christ and the church so that others will be able to look at us and say we want a marriage like that because we see Christ in that marriage that's the biggest compliment your marriage can ever get we see Christ in your marriage. Ask God's grace for that. And one day, oh, one day, you'll be in the utopian marriage at the right hand of Christ, side by side with your spouse, but both of you focused on Jesus, married to him, spiritually, 
in that utopian marriage where there'll be no more spots and no more wrinkles, all evil walled out, all good walled in, and no more sin. But Christ will be all and in all. Oh, hasten the day, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Lord God, please bless, please bless this sermon, this practical sermon, and help us to build our marriages on a biblical foundation to honor thee in the earth, but also for true joy so that the purpose of life, to glorify thee and to enjoy thee, would be evident also in our marriages in a very real and tangible way, day by day. Be with those who are in hurting marriages. Help them, Lord, to restore their marriages based on thy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.